The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and an investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And joining us today is a young woman, a new book author, and a young and new voice to the food advocacy movement. Her name is Jill Richardson. Jill, welcome. Thank you. Jill, you have just produced a book called Recipe for America, Why Our Food System is Broken and What We Can Do to Fix It. And in reading this book, I found that you have divided it into several really great sections, and I thought we'd go through a little bit about your mission as well as some of the key points that you think we should cover in the book, if that's okay with you. Sure thing. Okay. So tell me something. You're 27 years old, is that correct? 28. 28. Well, happy birthday. Um, And I know that you, um, you, you didn't start out in a profession that related to food. You were a healthcare analyst, is that right? I was, yes. And how did you become interested in food? Um, you know, part of it was just my own frustration with trying to eat well. And it became a concern beyond just myself when I was, you know, again and again, I would go into a primary care department and I would ask them, what are your top diagnoses? You know, what types of problems do you see? And they'd say most of what we see is diabetes, it's hypertension, it's, you know, all these diet-related problems. And then what just what really pushed me over the edge was a week when I was working in a cardiac ICU and I saw people with tubes coming out of them and needles and, you know, surgery and all this stuff going on that was largely preventable. And they they weren't old people. They were my parents' age. You know, they were middle-aged, maybe, a bunch of them. And it, it was really sad. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe we're doing this to ourselves. There has to be a better way. And what what was it that enabled you to literally connect the dots between what you were seeing in a healthcare setting and diet? Well, I think what woke me up was I was, you know, I was trying to eat well. And I was having a hard time that week. We were working 14-hour shifts, and the hospital didn't have very healthy food. And we were staying in Waikiki and Honolulu, and I was having a hard time finding healthy food for myself. And I, I knew how to eat well. I like to eat well. Um, but I was just struggling. And then, you know, what really woke me up was they gave, they were printing off a handout to give to one of the patients called the Heart Healthy Diet. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, give me a copy. I want to see what the advice is. And I was, I was reading it and it sounded like a punishment because you, you can't even take this advice and eat in a restaurant. It was saying, you know, eat lots of fruits and vegetables and don't eat meat so much, you know, or eat lean meat or, you know, don't eat the long list of foods. And it looks like a punishment. And then I thought, wait a second, but I already eat well and I like to eat well and it's not a punishment. It's just difficult within the, you know, the standard American diet. Yeah, well, you know, being a dietitian, I am so familiar with those diet sheets. And it's funny that um, 
you describe it as a punishment. I think many of the patients that we gave those sheets to also saw it as a punishment. I always laugh and say the dietitian is the least favorite healthcare provider because we go in the room and we tell the patient, you know, they can't eat anything that they like to. But I'll tell you what I think was missing from those diet sheets, and I think that you've covered very well in your book, and that is it's not so much what we eat, but where that food comes from that is also part of our total personal health as well as, you know, the health of the planet. I I would agree with that. And, you know, I think also there's just, um, I mean, if you look at what's available in a lot of different venues, the majority of what's available is the unhealthy stuff and the minority is the healthy stuff prepared in a good, you know, in a in a pleasant way. Right. You know, and I, I think that's exactly it. It was really funny. Earlier this year, I took a friend to the farmer's market, and he got some apples. He didn't really know what to do with himself because he wasn't used to shopping at a farmer's market, and so, you know, he, he didn't really know what to buy, but he bought a few apples. And he came to me later, and he goes, Oh, my God, those apples were off the hook. <laughs> And he said, you know, he was eating one, and he, he gave a taste to a friend at work, and the guy was like, where did you get these? These are amazing. And they were going nuts about these apples. Uh, you know, so eating well can be very enjoyable, but I think that oftentimes that, that you'll, you'll see a lower-quality apples, you know, just to use apples as an example. If you look at something that might be for sale at a convenience store or a cafeteria or, you know, somewhere like that. Yeah, if even if you can find an apple at a convenience store... Um, well, I, let me, let's get to the meat, if you'll forgive the pun, of this book. Uh, Recipe for America, why our food system is broken. Why is our food system broken? You know, I think um, I can't say it any better than Francis Moore Lapita that, you know, we have a problem with democracy. There's a very few powerful players who have the majority of the power here, and people like us don't have the majority of the power, and... You know, our decisions are being made not for what's best for everybody, but for what's going to profit those few powerful players. How did they become so powerful? Yeah, I think it was just, it was over time as a lot of, a lot of it actually happened after World War II. I go through this in my book because I wanted to know, you know, when, when we adopted things like pesticide use and commercial fertilizer, did we adopt it because there was a clear scientific benefit to it over what we were doing and somebody tested it and found that it was plainly better? Or, or you know, why did we do such a stupid thing? Right. And a lot of it was just, you know, in the years following World War II, we were afraid of living back into another depression. We had all this excess production that was used for the war. And in the case of DDT, they were using DDT in Italy and in the Pacific to deal with um, malaria. And largely the, the chemical companies were really, the decision to market it to the public was left to them, despite, you know, tons of concerns about the safety of it from a wide variety of different groups. They really got to call the shots and they said, yeah, of course we want to market it to the public. And they had all these extra planes left over. They'd use them as crop dusters, and they had all these extra chemicals left over, and they, you know, used them on our crops. So I think a lot of it, you know, a lot of it was this American idea of the free market. And I, I think I think we don't ask who our economy serves. We don't realize that it's supposed to serve us, the people. We do a lot just in, you know, a, a, almost as if we, the people, serve the economy. 
I think that's a really brilliant observation. I I know that I was looking through um, the different chapters of your book, and I, I did find this section where you talk about, you know, prior to World War II, we pretty much did grow everything organically. It might not have been called that, but we cer- certainly weren't applying pesticides. And now, I don't know if you find this to be the case in your part of the of the nation. And, of course, I didn't tell our listeners that you're based in California, but you lived in, in different states. You've certainly lived in the Midwest. But I go to my local farmer's market, and I try to find fruit that hasn't been sprayed with pesticides. And, you know, I'm told repeatedly, well, you know, we can't grow it here without pesticides. And I think back, well, gosh, you know, um, prior to World War II, we did produce it without these harmful pesticides. So what changed? Yeah, you know, that's really funny because a lot of times people will say to me, you know, because I, I go to the farmer's market and I don't rely on organic certification. I just ask them, do you spray it? And, you know, they'll say yes or no. And people go, oh, well, the farmers could lie. But the people who do use pesticides, they're almost indignant. They're like, yeah, I have to. Right. <laughs> of course I use it. And one guy had the nerve to tell me that um, methyl bromide, which is being phased out internationally because it's so bad, he was telling me how great it was to use on strawberries. And I was just like, oh, my God. Um, So what changed? You know, I think think there's, you know, plants have several needs. They need to be protected from disease, from pests. They need nutrients. They need fertility. They need the soil structure to be good so that they can get water, but they're not too bogged down with water. It's also aerated. And there's two ways to do that. You can either let nature take care of it with the microbes and the soil and the earthworms and, you know, beneficial insects and things like that, or you can kill off that ecosystem and then replace it with chemicals. And once you kill off that ecosystem, it takes a couple years to regenerate. So I think... You know what the farmers are telling you that when they say we need the pesticides, they're telling you we've killed off that ecosystem and if we if we don't replace it with chemicals, you know, there's nothing to perform those functions for our crops. And that's true. It will take a couple of years for the ecosystem to regenerate. They say that the ground just goes crazy in those first couple of years when you start to transition to organic. You know, at first nothing's growing there and then all of a sudden just everything's growing there because you're not spraying it with poison anymore. So, you know, I think for those for those farmers, they're probably telling you the truth as, as they know it. But, right. um, you know, they don't know what life was like before we used all the chemicals. Right. Yeah, and there are so many unintended consequences. I know you have a chapter here in your book that's devoted just to children's health, and it predominantly deals with the issue of, of marketing junk foods to children. But I think, too, when we talk about food safety and we talk about our children, it's very important to also think about what are the unintended consequences of using these chemicals on our food. So um, I, I appreciate the fact that you've, you've really covered so many different topics in one very easy and fun read, um, as well as a call to action. So l- let me just focus on a chapter here, Living La Vida Locavore, or the lo- the local life is what I like is how I like to interpret that. But I I like the way you quote Alice Waters here, where she says, "Food is precious." And I wonder if you could maybe share a little bit about why you included that quote. Well, you know, I included it because it was it was quoted as part of a Thanksgiving sermon by a minister, it was a church that a friend of mine goes to, and he said, you'll love this sermon, and he sent me it in an MP3. 
And I thought, wow, you know, it's not just me being worried about our health because I care about the, you know, our food because I care about health and the environment, but it turned into a spiritual need. It's not just not nourishing our, our nutritional needs, but it's not nourishing us on a spiritual level. Um, and so he, he had quoted that Alice Waters quote in his sermon, and that's why I included it. Yeah, it's a really beautiful introduction to a very important um, part of the of changing the way we eat and to think more about, gosh, if I have a choice between a tomato grown in Mexico or Canada or even California versus a tomato that's grown certainly in my Midwestern market, there, there wouldn't even be a choice. Um, providing, again, that we have access to those local foods and that local infrastructure. So uh, let's jump to another section of the book, and that has to do with, you know, what are the biggest barriers to having a more sustainable food system, as your research shows? Okay. Well, I mean, some of it is nature. I mean, some of it are things that we can't help, and then there's things that we can't help. So just to give you a couple examples, you know, I give an example of let's say we wanted to include local food in our school system. Let's say we wanted to feed the, you know, the children local blueberries. Well, a five-acre farm is not going to be able to supply an entire school district. And, you know, even a huge farm can't provide blueberries when they're not in season. You know, so there, there are difficulties that are just due to nature. Um, but then, you know, farmers are really innovative. They're really smart. I trust them to do, you know, a lot to overcome a lot of those barriers, but then there's legal barriers. And so one of those things are um, processing facilities, slaughterhouses. They've just been decreasing and decreasing in, you know, recent years. So I, I found an article about a restaurant locally here in San Diego. There was a farm that was raising goats, and they wanted to sell the goats to this restaurant. And the restaurant, for a while, had found a slaughterhouse that could process the goats that wasn't too far away. The customers loved it. And then the slaughterhouse, I don't know if it went out of business or what, but they lost access to that. So, you know, you've got a market for people that want to buy humane meat, that want, you know, they, they care about where they're meat came from, how the animals were raised, you've got a farm that's producing these animals that are treating them well, and yet you can't put a live goat on a plate. What, you know, what I found is that slaughterhouses tend to want large customers. They want a customer who can bring them animals all year long, not somebody who's got maybe 15 cows to slaughter in an entire year. And due to regulations, you know, you're, just, you're not allowed to just go slaughter your own goats and serve them up in a restaurant. And there's reasons for that. Some of them are good reasons. But at the same time, it's kind of amazing that we were able to, you know, eat meat for all of human history before we had these regulations in place. And yet now, you know, some farm that's raising a couple goats can't sell them to a restaurant because of these regulations because it's supposedly unsafe. You know, it seems these problems uh, or these barriers seem so overwhelming at times. I know you've you've devoted this book not only to identifying the problems or why our food system is broken, but you've also devoted a section to what we can do to fix it. So let's say I want more local food, but we don't have the infrastructure, or maybe we have um, legislation that that's more favorable to the big producers rather than the small. What can somebody like little old me or you do you know, to help change or to help fix that system? Okay, yeah, first of all, I mean, I feel like there's three pieces that work together. There's 
individuals like you or me, and we do things like choose to buy from a farmer's market or plant a garden, um, there's a lot that can be done in communities, you know, where they organize. They maybe change the laws so you can allow chickens in your backyard or start a new farmer's market and make sure it can accept food stamps or something. And then where I really focus on is the federal level, um, what needs to be done on a federal level to help all of us. And so, um, you know, I don't want to... I'm not ignoring those other pieces, or rather, you know, I, I recognize that they exist. That's just not where I focus. But, you know, on a federal level, what, what's really sad is what's politically feasible and what's necessary. There's a huge gap between those two things right now. Just, for example, the other day, a couple of weeks ago, I guess, I was complaining online that, you know, some school was serving corn dogs to the children and people were like, so what's wrong with that? You know, and they're these totally processed, junky mystery meats. You know, and people just didn't see a problem with it. So part of it is raising people's consciousness, and I think part of it is getting some of these incremental solutions. And as you do that, awareness will be raised, and maybe, you know, that will lay the groundwork for taking it a step further in the future. But, you know, I think clearly people are dying from peanut butter, from burgers, from all kinds of things. They're getting sick from cookie dough right now. It's clear that food safety laws need a makeover. Um, and just to put it in context, the backbone of our, our meat safety laws are from 1906, and um, the backbone of our FDA laws are from 1938. So they're very outdated. They, you know, There's a lot of new concerns that have come up since then, new methods of testing, new science that needs to be incorporated in the laws that just hasn't because... Um, the meat companies in particular are very, very powerful. So that that's one area where it's just it's a no-brainer. Um, and I don't think it would be too politically difficult in terms of getting the public on your side. Labeling is another area where I don't think the public would be too opposed to it because they tend to see it as an increase in freedom. And, you know, of course, tell me what's in my food. What do you mean you don't want to tell me what's in my food? Uh, but our labels, you know, there's, Two problems. One is a lot of misleading information is allowed on labels. It recently, Cheerios was actually cited for promising to lower your cholesterol, and the FDA said that you're making a promise that a drug would make. You know, unless you want to go through clinical trials like a drug, you can't make that promise. But that was rare for the FDA to step in. So you know, there's a lot of misleading promises like that on labels, and then there's also the lack of information. You know, you can't tell whether there's GMOs in your food, for example. And Nobody G- tells you. And a GMO is a genetically modified organism or a genetically modified ingredient that yeah. um, that in Europe, uh, European labels, food labels require GMO labeling, but not so in the United States. Yeah, and, the, you know, the majority of our processed foods do contain genetically modified ingredients. And... Um, you know, I tend to be a skeptic. I tend to not want to, you know, I'll read some of the problems that people cite in terms of safety of genetically modified foods, but I really wait until scientific experts that I can trust weigh in. And there are some pretty credible scientists that, you know, raise possible concerns. It's definitely on a case-by-case basis. You know, it's not that all genetically modified foods are necessarily inherently unsafe, but Without labeling, you'll never even know if something was unsafe because we don't know who's been eating them and who hasn't. Well, you know, that that goes back to one of the things that 
that you said earlier in our conversation about having to do with democracy and how tightly connected our food choices and our democracy really are. And so if I, because I'm a mom, let's say I don't want to feed my family uh, genetically modified food, maybe just simply because I'm not sure and I want more proof that these ingredients might be safe, I don't have that freedom to choose. And I, I think that that's part of our you know, our basic American food or basic American democracy is that we want our food choices to be based on information that would be available to us should we choose to use it or or make our decisions on what to eat based on that information. I, I totally agree. And, you know, I think what the GMO, the, the biotech companies would say, it's very arrogant. They would say, well, consumers have irrational concerns and irrational fears and because we, the experts, know that these, you know, these products are safe, we don't want to tell you that you're eating them um, because we're afraid that consumers would have irrational fears about them. But it's funny when you look at a risk versus benefit of these products, of genetically modified foods, who takes the risk is everybody who eats them and who gets the benefit is the company that sells them. So it's very lopsided. You know, even if it turns out that they are safe, it's just, um, you know, it's very arrogant for them to take that attitude of we're the experts and we know and you don't. Um, and uh, what you were saying about them not wanting to share the information, that also extends to um, menu labeling with calories. There's been a fight over the years um, for companies like McDonald's to tell us how many calories are in our food. And... You know, at first they didn't want to tell us at all, and then they want to tell us, but on a sign that they, you know, put on a wall somewhere maybe where we can't see it, where it's in fine print, or they want it to come on a wrapper that we get post-purchase. So, you know, first you order the Big Mac, and then after you buy it, you find out it has a ton of calories, mm. not before. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, it's my it's my total daily caloric allotment here in one, in one value meal. <laughs> I, I know, I know. And, you know, the joke is that, you know, sure, they don't mind labeling it, but they want to put it on a sign that's, like, below the counter where you can't see it. Right, exactly. Well, you know, it's because of consumers, and it's because of books and, and posts that you've posted on, I know you've got your own website, but you also have written articles for, is it the Daily Coast? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Daily Coast, yeah. Daily Coast. And so if people want to read, and you're just a wonderful writer, Jill. I have to tell you, I, I think I probably found you or discovered you on the Community Food Security Coalition website and um, on that listserv, and we were talking about some of the mistreatment of people in these livestock processing facilities, and I oh my gosh. struck <laughs> up a, a close friendship with you just online. But I want, to, um, I want to give people a few things before we wrap up. One is your website, which is www.levitalocavore.org. And I, I made an easier way for people to get there. If you go to sustainablefoodblog.org, it will take you there. Okay, sustainablefoodblog.org. And is that one word? Yeah, all one word, sustainablefoodblog.org. And it's not .com because that takes you to a different site. Okay, and I'm sure that if people simply um, searched Google. for your name, Jill Richardson, they would come up with you, as well as the title of your book, Recipe for America, why our food system is broken, and what we can do to fix it. Before we close, I want to give you a chance to leave our listeners with a few tips. We're frustrated with our food system. We don't like the quality of the food that's available to us in schools, certainly, and even the lack of access or lack of labeling. What can we do? 
What I would recommend, the, the easiest thing to do, um, and it's also effective, is to sign up for a list, you know, an action alert list from a website you trust, from an organization you trust, like Organic Consumers Association or Food and Water Watch, something like that. And I list several choices in my book. And those organizations are very savvy. They'll follow Congress. They'll follow all of the bills that are going on. And they'll come up with letters with, you know, the best talking points, and they'll tell you when to take action. And it's usually pretty much as easy as one click to shoot off an email to your congressperson or your senator. And believe it or not, you know, I've heard a lot of skepticism. People say, am I just writing, you know, letters to nobody that do nothing? But they really do have an effect. And a lot of times it's sad because the effect, you know, is all behind closed doors and we don't get to see it. But somebody like Organic Consumers can really generate 10,000 letters to Washington, D.C., and every letter counts, you know, and it, it does have an effect. It's amazing what an effect it does have. Um, so that that would be my top recommendation to people. And that's the Organic Consumers Association, if anybody wants to Google them as well. Yeah, yeah I, I have to agree with you. I really, I really encourage consumers not to feel like they're alone in this fight for food justice. It's really important for us to join other organizations that share our concerns. And then I love your suggestion to follow those action alerts. They're very promising in terms of their power. Um, I also think that simply making a phone call, I know you list, you know, contacting your legislators, um, writing a letter to the editor. I think the first time we do it, we feel a little insecure about it. But certainly make that phone call. Um, the staffers are listening. They really do convey those those messages for us. Yeah, the first time I called, I was petrified. I'm like, I don't know what to say to a congressperson's office. But, the, you know, the staffers are getting the phone calls all day long. And um, it's totally okay to just call up and say, hi, I want to leave a message. This is how I feel about, you know, let's say the food safety bill. Um, or you can say, I want to talk to whoever in the office is dealing with the food safety bill if you'd like a little bit more, you know, if you want to do a little bit more about it, if you want to actually have a conversation with somebody, find out what the, you know, the position of the person in Congress who represents you is, maybe tell them your personal story about, you know, the time your child got food poisoning or something like that to really make it personal about why, you know, why this is so important to you. And you know, what's funny is they will use these stories, the personal stories of their constituents, they'll use them in speeches. They'll say, this is why we need this. You know, so-and-so from my district, her six-year-old got sick. So it, it does have an effect. Jill, uh, I've got to stop you because okay. we are out of time. But this Great. and more is available in Recipe for America. The author and our guest today is Jill Richardson. Jill, I want to thank you so much for being with me. And to close, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and to mention that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri.